This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. This week marks the celebration of two holidays, Passover and Easter. Both of these holidays revolve around themes of freedom and rebirth. I, I can't speak much to Easter, but the Passover Seder actively asks us not only to take part in its rituals, but to question and discuss them as well. In this week's story, Teller Lane Dixon shares with us her own childhood summer ritual and how rebirth and freedom can come in so many different forms. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in February 2020, Second Story is proud to present A Lake Without a Rope Swing Isn't a Lake. Growing up, my family spent every other weekend at Lake Raven, a lake community built in 1915, nestled two hours outside Atlanta in the pine-covered Georgia mountains. We started our Sundays waking up with the sun, eating tomato sandwiches, and being careful where we set our towels. The worst thing that could happen to you was a bunch of berry bug bites in your bikini line, especially if you were a 13-year-old girl who does not want to admit that she just got her period for the first time. Our house teetered on the edge of a Georgia clay-covered hill that always seemed on the brink of collapse. An objectively not safe place for children to play capture the flag. <laughs> Even after an actual miniature landslide consisting of mostly logs, left my brother's best friend with a severe concussion. <laughs> my parents' response when we could ask if we could play on the hill was still a carefree, make sure to wear shoes. As if Birkenstocks could protect you from a traumatic brain injury. <laughs> but that was the part of the lake, the part that didn't belong in the city. The rough and tumble, rubs of dirt on it where the red fern grows sort of attitude that we all adopted once the car hit 80 on the highway. Simply put, the lake was special. I was unaware of my dad's drinking when we began our trips to Lake Rabin. And it wasn't until years later, when I came home from soccer practice to find my dad wandering our house like a stranger, that I even realized how severe it had gotten. I know that the lake was not spared in my family's wake, because unfortunately that is not how addiction lives. But my memories there are not drowning in it. Instead, they're watching the sunset from the dock, telling stories in the night as the campfire curls towards the stars, and riding over waves in a tube behind a boat while my dad steers us headfirst into a clear blue sky. Our lake had a rope swing. Located halfway between our house and Hall's famous boathouse, it hung like a white flag on the side of the mountain. Our lake is not special in this way, its inclusion of a rope swing. Every lake has a rope swing. <laughs> and if it doesn't, I ask you this, is it even a lake? <laughs> Ours had cred, though. Swinging from the rope swing said something about you. You gained notoriety. It can only be assumed that the rope swing was there before the lake, before man, before time. <laughs> Placed there by God herself on the sixth and final day of creation. <laughs> Chicken or the egg? Rope swing. 
Once you swung, you could strut into your first day of school after summer break, head held high with the confidence of a young Corey Feldman. You were untouchable. Hey, Lane, what did you do this summer? <laughs> Nothing much, Becca. I just, like, sort of got my period and swung the rope. <laughs> In actuality, I hated the rope swing. It was an objectively terrifying thing to do. First, you had to consciously make the choice to leave the safe, warm heaven that was the boat and jump face first into an ice-cold torture bath that was the lake, where there were definitely snakes that were definitely poisonous. Ever seen a snake swim in a lake? Exactly. They are unseen, sneaky, camouflaged little death demons full of poison and intent. You cannot see them, you cannot hear them, you can only feel them once they've bitten and injected you with a flesh-eating, body-paralyzing poison. Next, you have to hoist yourself up on the slippery, moss-covered, razor-sharp rocks. You know in the movie Saw 2 when one of the characters gets pushed into a needle pit? It is exactly like that, plus snakes. Once you're up on the hill, it's an unsteady and pine-needle-covered Temple of Doom mountain climb where I cannot stress this enough, there are snakes. <laughs> and then, suddenly, you're there. At the top. At the rope swing. And you think you've made it. And all you have to do is just jump off a 15-foot cliff, like it's easy. Like it's a choice you just make and then do. Like there aren't sharp rocks and assassin snakes waiting for the moment your stomach hits the water. Yet, every year, I jumped. It was a rite of passage I could not refuse. But that's the thing with southerners and water, I think. Even in the midst of terror, we are still slightly at ease, still trusting. We're connected to the current in some way, laying down history as the tide shifts, often forgiving but never forgetting the destruction it can sometimes cause, instead choosing to focus on the fresh start that nature's baptism can offer. The summer before sixth grade, our family made our last lake trip of the summer. My parents were in the middle of figuring out their marriage, and a trip to the lake felt like a blessing. Our days were full of nonstop action, rocking our bodies into a slumber deep enough to ignore that when water turned to wine, our parents' fights flooded the house. Like always, time evaded us. And before we knew it, our first day became our last, and it was almost time to make our way back to the city. I stood, arms crossed, at the edge of our dock, watching the clouds roll in and whispering my usual goodbyes to the water, when suddenly I realized I hadn't flung my body into certain death yet. <laughs> this was bad news. This was dire straits. I was about to start a whole new year of school. I mean, why hadn't I done it earlier? We'd made the trip multiple times, but I had been too scared and too on my period to take my chances. <laughs> Instead, I sat in the hole of the boat, racking my brain for ways to explain the blood and leather white seat I had just sat up from. <laughs> Ketchup. I uh, cut my butt shaving. <laughs> Murder! <laughs> my dad and I jumped in the pontoon boat and sped away as fast as you can on a boat that's max speed is 18 miles per hour. <laughs> we parked our boat just outside the rocks, 
right under one of the unusually large pine trees that hunched over the lake like the Grim Reaper. Hurry up, kiddo, my dad said as the wind began to pick up. We want to beat the storm. This is the first time I had done the rope swing alone, and the idea of being the only body in the water gave me pause. When there were more of us, I always made sure to position myself in the middle of the group, creating a buffer between me and the silver-tongued carriers of death. Lame. I closed my eyes, thought of Amelia Earhart, and threw myself into the water, swimming as fast as I could to the ledge and hoisting myself up with a silent protection prayer. Dear God, please don't let me die. And if I do have to die, and if it has to involve snakes, let it be one big snake swallowing me whole like John Voight and Anaconda. Amen. I quickly reached the top, noticed the curtains of clouds outlining my dad's silhouette, and briefly debated coming back down. Do it or don't, he yelled. Flashes of Dating Darling's braces filled smirk, Chris Bandon's laugh, and a chorus of a thousand bullies flashed through my head, and before I knew it, I was hitting the water at the exact same time as the first plump raindrop. Boat! Now! My dad yelled as he frantically tried starting the boat. You do not want to be in the water when lightning starts. I knew he was kicking himself for knowing better. Then, all of a sudden, a splash. I looked up, confused. No dad to be seen, just an empty boat rocking violently up and down on now choppy waters. I swam around in a panic to the back of the boat where the motor sits, and there he was, in the water, with the now broken boat ladder in hand. I don't know if you've ever been on a pontoon boat, but they sit high above the water, like a floating party dock on two metal canoes. A ladder is essential in getting in and out of the water, especially if you're a 58-year-old man with back problems. I look at my dad with my mouth open. He looks at me with eyes wide with sheer panic. Then we burst out laughing. Laughing at inappropriate moments is a family trait of ours. Sad movies, funerals, important speeches, you name it, and we have laughed during it. Years later, my dad goes to rehab for the first time. I will laugh so hard in the middle of group that I start crying again. Without warning, lightning splits the sky open, and a new urgency overtakes my dad as the rain turns the hail. I try to pull myself up on the boat, and I slip back into the water, scraping my elbows in the way. I try again, finally pulling my body up and onto the astroturf. My dad, a proud man, try attempts to get up on his own, shooing away my hand when offered. Each time, his body falls back into the water. Finally, he accepts my help, and I grab his hands and I pull as hard as I can. He falls. I wrap my arms around his, my hands on his forearms, the same way he would do when he would swing us in circles high above the surf at Myrtle Beach, and I pull. And for a second, I actually think it's going to work that this teamwork, our love, and just a touch of luck would get him back into the boat. But again, he is in the water. Come on, Lane, pull. I'm trying, Dad. For 40 minutes, I tried. I linked our arms together. I hoisted and I pulled until I couldn't anymore. I stood there, breathless, looking down at my father's face surrounded by water, like a full moon engulfed in the night sky. And finally, I cried. I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know how to save you, Dad. 
So we stood there, helpless in the storm. Two people lost at sea and for a moment to each other. Eventually, with the help of a passerby and an extra set of arms, we did get my dad back into the boat and us home safely. We rode back in the car to Atlanta with the heat on blast, Evan recounting our harrowing tale of life and death, laughing at the absurdity. I laughed along with them, but was left looking at the window with an uncomfortable awareness of the first slight shift occurring in me. The shift that occurs in all tender-hearted children living in a home dipped in addiction. The chipping away of the self, the reversal of the protector and the protected. Addiction can have a cruel way of making you seem close, pulling you closer and closer together until you've hollowed yourself out, providing a shell for them to crawl into. But this is not how we save each other, by sacrificing the self. And this is not closeness. I'm no longer trying to pull my dad back into the boat, but I have never stopped holding his hand. Lately, there have been more storms than not, and if I'm not careful, I feel myself grow heavy with resentment, and I sink to the bottom of the lake like our broken ladder did. But there is still so much good. So many ways to feel myself expand beyond these circumstances. Sunsets, campfires, the boat, big family dinners, my dad's eyes as he tells a story, my mom's laugh, the love that fills us up. The sky does clear up, even if just for a moment. I'm trying, Dad. I'm trying. This story was produced by Ariella Khan, curated by Deb Lewis, directed by Max Spitz, with music and sound design by Mariana Green. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Flom, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, CoBank, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this... This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.